Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm not just writing history. I am making it. I have the brain of a historian and the clapback of a comedian. You better come with sources, because I always check footnotes. Hi, welcome back to another episode of Historians on Housewives. I'm here with Jessica. Hi. Max. Hello. And today we're going to speak with... Um, Dr. Tanisha Ford. And as she would say, we're going to talk about the DNA contained in the essence of our clothes. Um, the other ways that she talks about this relationship between fashion and clothing and emotion is that it's the residue that lives on, you know, the fashion is an ecosystem. Um, and so she's going to talk to us about fashion, clothes, and black socialites. So, uh, Jessica, do you want to Tell us a little bit more about who Tanisha Ford is. Tanisha C. Ford is an award-winning writer, cultural critic, and historian. She is the author of her new book, which is Dressed in Dreams, A Black Girl's Love Letter to the Power of Fashion. She's also the author of Kwame Brathwaite, Black is Beautiful, and Liberated Threads, Black Women's Style and the Global Politics of Soul. We are very excited to have Tanisha here today. She's one of my sisters in the Association of Black Women Historians. She also considers herself, as she describes herself, on page 19 of Dressed in Dreams, she calls herself a daughter of the diaspora, a black power remix. And I think this is the perfect way to describe Dr. Tanisha C. Ford. Now, you met her kind of from afar at a conference once, right, Jessica? I did meet her um, at a conference. She came to a session I was doing with the late, great Rosalind Turberg Penn, S Leslie Alexander, and um, Amrita Chakvardi Myers, who is actually her dissertation advisor. So a young Tanisha Ford, who had just finished her dissertation, came to my session at the OAH, and I was struck by the, really kind of the aura, the, the, the presence of this woman in the back of the room. Um, style was impeccable, of course, and I thought, she must be one of these cool kids. Later, we, we had a conversation, she introduced herself, and it came to me through someone else that she said that she wanted to stay in touch with me um, because she thought I had good energy. 
So in my mind, I'm thinking we're like the energy twins. I always delight in seeing Tanisha at conferences. I've, I've kind of watched her grow up in the profession, and she is just doing incredibly. In addition to her work on fashion, she also um, works on social movement history, feminisms, material culture, black philanthropy, the built environment, black life in the Rust Belt, girlhood studies and fashion, beauty and body politics. And she really likes to make connections between the past and the present in ways that shed refreshing new light on contemporary cultural and political issues. So I felt like before we bring her on the show today, I would like us to think about our own historian's closet. Um, Tanisha Ford talks about the closet as being an archive. And so I'm interested in setting this discussion up with maybe talking about the one piece of clothing or the one outfit in our closets that is just our favorite, that really means something to us. Well, I know the the most important thing in my historian's closet is a scarf. I have to have a scarf on before I do a talk, before really before I walk out of the house. I'm not dressed unless I have a scarf on. It's kind of my armor against the world. It, it's, it is soothing. It's comforting. But also the right scarf will say, look out, world, I'm here. I'd have to say the one piece of clothing, if I had to pick one, uh, would be... This old raggedy uh, motorhead shirt that I own that I've had since I was 13 or 14. Um, when I went to my first uh, motorhead show, I don't wear uh, music t shirt, band t shirts particularly anymore, but um, because now we're in the academy. But. Um, <laughs> I do have a, a section of my closet dedicated to um, band, band t-shirts that I, I enjoy listening to and have seen um, in concert. And, and among those, Motorhead is the top because they would tour until the great late Let Me Kill Mister died. Um, they would tour every year. And so it was kind of like... And they would come specifically to Southern California in October. And so it was like Motorhead, Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas. Like you could always count on Motorhead coming back to town. So, um, yeah, that one particular piece of clothing probably means more to me than uh, any any of the others. What about you, Casey? Well, I do know that my wedding dress does hang in the closet, but that is not the one piece of clothing. That'd be a little weird. <laughs> uh, I have, I call it my jingle bell sweater. And um, I actually took it. I don't really think it was given to me. I think I kind of just took it from my aunt. She had this sweater when she was in college. So like this is like from the late, 70s early 80s you really gotta describe what this thing looks like oh I'm getting there I'm setting it up like okay. I'm telling you this thing is ancient I will still be wearing it as it literally rots off my body it means the world to me it has these like scrunchy you know the old like scrunchy socks but it's like that's what it is on the sleeve and around um like the bottom but it's like white with with like a little rim of blue as like the final border and it, the same thing on the neck. So it has this like just awful, but I love it. Like scrunchy neckline with the blue and then the actual white sweater itself 
are hanging ornaments, but it's tactile. So like there's different fabrics and some of them are poofy out, right? So there's like the ribbons that are holding up the ornament ball, right? As if it's like suspended. And I love this. I've actually really thought about potentially gluing new ribbons on top of the ribbons to make it more tactile or adding jingle bells. I wear this on my chorus does they're singing Christmas cards and we're like crammed into this little room singing into a phone and and it just like it feels like it is my holiday go-to but I really like to wear it all year round and so I feel like what makes this piece of clothing so important to me is that I literally do think I am the like physical embodiment real person of Buddy the Elf like if I could, I would just live in a Christmas village year round, you know, very secular Christmas, lights, jingle bells, like all the music, all the smells, all the food, 24-7. Um, I, I feel like I've been so shamed into not hard launching Christmas until November 1st, but I start planning, like I'm already planning. <laughs> I'm dead and so, <laughs> so, so you better believe that when we are in this room recording our Christmas episode with Martina Baldwin on November 1st, and we talk about Andy Cohen and his relationship to Santa, I will be at this table in this Jingle Bell sweater. So you will have to process it, but it will make it that much better. I, I, would, I would like to submit to the archive one other piece of clothing that I have that I love it because people say, what is that? It is a shirt designed by Lovey, awesomely Lovey, and it is called, it is, it is her catchphrase, unable to can, like C-A-N. So I wear it out in the streets, and people look at me, unable to can, like, like canning things, like fruits and stuff. No, I mean, it means like I can't, I cannot deal. So when you wear your sweater. <laughs> oh, like unable to do. I'm, like, I, I cannot do can. it. I cannot do it. So when I you gotcha. wear this sweater for our Christmas episode, I will be wearing my second favorite piece of clothing, my unable to can t-shirt. <laughs> because the story you just told me. Oh my, I had no idea. <laughs> I, some, I So it's like really funny because in the fall, for whatever reason, I run into one of my advisors all the time, like at late night Target. I don't know why it happens this way, <laughs> but I run into him and his wife and they'll be like, you know, last minute Halloween or whatever for the kids. And I'm already in my Jingle Bell sweater and he, he just looks at me and he's like, Oh my gosh, it's starting earlier. <laughs> I'm like, I know. And you know, when they see us even at like a summer event or something. No, you say it like, <laughs> I know. <laughs> and like, like we saw them at like a summer party last summer and his wife was like, so have you already planned Christmas? I said, actually, I've organized my lights. They're ready to go. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> Unable to can, people. Unable to can. Yeah. <laughs> Unable to can Motorhead and the Jingle Bell s- sweater. <laughs> What a combination. Somehow it Mm -hmm. works. Uh, So let's welcome Tanisha Ford. Hi, is this Tanisha? Yes, it is. Hi, this is Casey. um, And you're on with Historians on Housewives. And you're also here with Max Spear. Hello. And Jessica Millward. Hi, Jessica. T. Ford, how are you? I'm fine. <laughs> good, good. Thanks for being on. Yeah, my pleasure. So, Tanisha, in what ways has Bravo Television shaped your academic life? Is it 
a downtime pursuit for you? Does watching Bravo offer you new ways to see your projects or help you reevaluate the things that you're thinking about? I think in the early days of my Bravo TV watching, it was a way to bond with other black women in grad school. So we would watch shows like the Real Housewives of Orange County and, you know, make fun of the women or fantasize about having houses that were fancy like theirs. And then, of course, when Real Housewives of Atlanta came on, that really changed the game. Then we started having like meetup parties to, to view the show together. But I would say here more recently, especially with the launch of Real Housewives of Potomac, that's where I started to see how the show connects with my own work. Uh, because I'm I'm thinking about Black women who were a part of this Black elite and this way that they used their identity and their uh, form of um, self-making, if you will, to raise funds for various Black freedom movement causes. So I've, I'm really interested in how the women in Potomac, particularly in that first season, presented themselves as part of this, you know, old guard, old money elite in the Potomac area. And part of that was coming from nothing and then making yourself into something or marrying into a family that was socially important, or perhaps you came from like a really important civil rights family. And then you married someone who was also prominent. So you became this black power couple in the community. And so I'm looking at the parallels between those women in contemporary black society versus the women I study in the 1940s. But even though I use it for work, it's still a guilty pleasure. Like I love to, to tune in every week and watch the episodes and laugh and, you know, make fun of them and all those things that we do at reality television. So are one of the examples of these people who, um, that, that stick out in this narrative, would Karen Huger be one of these people for you? Yes, I find Karen so fascinating. Well, first it started off because she looks so much like Beyonce's mom <laughs> that everybody's like, oh, Karen's like Miss Tina Knows. <laughs> so I was like, let me tune in to see what Beyonce's mom was talking about on Real Housewives of Potomac. But I love her story, like how she came, she was like a, a, a country girl, you know, and she had an interest in, you know, changing her social circumstances. And she started to move through the the community of like the folks who went to like the Congressional uh, Black Caucus. And she started to network within those circles because some of her friends were saying like, here, this is a place to be and this is a place to meet men. And that's where she meets her husband. And then, you know, now she's, you know, married to the Black Bill Gates. And, you know, so I just really, I'm really enamored with and taken with the way that she has remade herself and the way that we learn more and more of that story as the seasons unfold. And for me, it parallels with this woman that I'm studying right now named Molly Moon, who came from a socially unimportant family and in the South. And then they moved to socially unimportant cities like Gary, Indiana. And I can say that because I'm from Indiana. So they moved <laughs> to Gary and then ultimately to Cleveland, you know? And so she, she then made herself into the Grand Dame of Harlem in the post-World War II years. And she ran Harlem and ruled with a satin glove all the way through the 1990s. So for me, I, when I look at Karen, I think about Molly. 
uh, this girl from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, who then becomes, you know, this leading figure in Harlem high society, even though she was never really rich. She just knew all the, the wealthy people and could go to them to raise money for the various causes she was, you know, organizing around. So in terms of thinking about society people, one of the other shows you like on Bravo is Project Runway. And Christian oh, yeah. Siriano is one of your favorite Bravo liberties. And so I was wondering if you could share some of your thoughts on Project Runway with Tim Gunn versus Project Runway with Christian Siriano. And you talk so much about fashion and material culture in your new book, Dressed in Dreams. So I was wondering if you could elaborate on the role that fashion plays in creating community. I love Christian Siriano. I love him. Like I love Christian from the, the, the season of Project Runway that Christian was on. And I've loved watching his career and how it's unfolded. And what I really appreciate about him is that he has always had a, um, a mind to blend the haute couture with the everyday. And that means that he designs for women of all shapes and sizes. And he has that kind of body consciousness and appreciation for bodies. And that means that a lot of um, curvy women, a lot of black women uh, who normally wouldn't be able to fit those sample sizes can wear his gowns that are gorgeous. And so I appreciate the work that he does, the kind of um, body positive activism that I really think he does through his fashion design. And of course, he even had that line with Payless, the shoe line. And so that meant that, you know, everyday people could afford to have a pair of Christian Siriano shoes. So I just love what he's done with his career and how he's used the Bravo platform to really create a name for himself and sustain a brand that has these different levels of, you know, clientele, but also price points. I think that that's really smart. And I think he was ahead of the curve with a lot of those those trends. Um, and I, what I loved then was seeing him come back to Project Runway. First of all, let me just say, I was thrilled to see Project Runway come back to Bravo because I felt like when it went to Lifetime, it just lost a lot of its luster, even though Tim Gunn and Heidi Klum remained amazing there. You know, it just, I feel like it, it had to fit more of a middle America model, like the designers who they chose and so when I saw it come back to Bravo, I was like, great. Now I can go back to being the queer, over-the-top show that I love to begin with, you know. And so I think that Tim Gunn is a legend. Nobody can replace Tim Gunn. And I love that Christian has, try has not tried to be the new Tim Gunn. Christian has really found his own way of being in that mentor role. And every week... I find that like I can't wait for his commentary on the clothes. <laughs> and he's just like, hmm, I think you can push that a little bit further. Like I really, I really think you can go there a little bit more. Trust yourself. And I love that he's not trying to use Tim Gunn's taglines. And he also hasn't tried to find his own. He's just kind of in the moment with the designers and feeling it out. So while I was shocked that Tim Gunn and Heidi Klum weren't returning. I think that it's a moment for this show to find a new identity for itself. And so I like the panel of judges that they've assembled. Um, now the, the new host, I don't, I mean, I'm still, you know, forming opinions there, but I like the panel of judges. And so I'm excited for the next season. And of course, this show has evolved as my own work 
on fashion and material culture has evolved. So just like with, you know, Real Housewives of Atlanta, I was watching Project Runway as a graduate student and, you know, remember being really excited about the clothes and the conversations they were having about bodies and what it meant to design for particular bodies or what it meant to design for more masculine bodies and, you know, the kind of training people needed in order to be able to move back and forth between different body shapes and sizes and so forth. And I think that it, it didn't necessarily influence the work that I was doing, but it gave me this fun outlet and a way to understand what was happening in the marketplace, at least how the TV show was portraying what was happening for us. And so for me, when I think about Dressed in Dreams, um, I wanted to write a book that kind of got to the very human emotions around clothes in a way, in a similar way as Project Runway, where, you know, when, especially when they had everyday women who would come in there and they would design for them and the women would become very emotional over the clothes that they created and how the clothes allowed them to reimagine their lives. That's the emotion I wanted to tap into with Dressed in Dreams. And so with that book, each chapter centers on a garment, hairstyle, or accessory, and it tells this very Black girl, Black woman-centered history of that garment to really show why we have such emotional connections to our clothes and why it matters to have certain garments passed down through a, a family, particularly a family of color who might not have had access to home loans or auto loans. You know, so that a, um, a watch or a fur coat becomes a piece that was worth a lot of money. Like it's something that's valued in the family. So I wanted to write about that and to really center the emotions of our clothes, but then also to center black girl innovation with fashion, like how we are really setting a lot of these trends, even when we don't get the credit for doing so. I, I was wondering if you could maybe speak to us about why clothes are so important for understanding human emotions. What is it about clothes that allows us a new insight into emotion? So every day when we stand before our closet, we make a series of choices about how we want to appear before the world. And I think that that choice is way more personal than we even realize on a daily basis. You know, like today I threw on uh, a gray lightweight shirt and some jeans because I'm going to be flying. And that doesn't seem to have any emotions but attached to that decision. But if I were to go into the airport and TSA were to say, okay, we need to pat you down extra because something is protruding from your shirt or we're picking up some kind of, you know, chemical film on your clothes, see, then that takes that choice to a whole nother level. It's like, okay, well, what if I would have chosen something else? What if, you know, I would have presented my body in a different way? I have a head wrap on my head today. What if they have to pat my head down? You know, those kinds of choices come with a set of emotions attached to them in large part because everything that we wear is being read by other people. Read, sometimes understood, sometimes misinterpreted. So I wanted to think about those kinds of questions about, you know, these everyday choices and what they mean once we step outside of our home and how we make choices sometimes to protect ourselves. So sometimes clothing is our armor. Sometimes we're trying to be bold and audacious. 
So we might wear a t-shirt like that says thick thighs save lives, you know, or, you know, I'm thinking about the, the black woman who was recently traveling and she had on a colorful romper and the flight attendant told her that what she was wearing was inappropriate and they made her get off the plane. Now think about that. That woman wore that garment. It was a cute little colorful romper because it made her feel good about herself and made her love her curves. And then this flight attendant tells you that you are dressed inappropriately. And now she's in a mirror taking photos of herself to say, there's nothing wrong with me. There's nothing wrong with my body. There's nothing wrong with what I chose to wear today. But there's something wrong with how mainstream society views my black curvy body in bright colors. So I wanted to be able to get at that. And I'm also was thinking about then how clothing becomes archives of all of our life memories, that woman will never be able to look at that garment the same way again. She will always remember what happened to her that day when she was made to get off a plane because she wore that garment. So I like to think about the material nature of our clothes and how they even hold so much of our DNA on them. Have you ever been ironing a shirt a shirt that you thought was clean and you run the iron over it and the steam rises and you can smell yourself in the garment. I'd have to iron in order to be able to smell it. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I really wanted to think about the residue of us, the residue of our lives that lives on in our clothes, even after we take them off and toss them into a dirty clothes bin or whatever. Like, you know, and it's that thing, I think, that when we start thinking about, say, for example, that fur coat I mentioned, and that thing is passed down, you want it because bits of Big Mama's DNA is still attached to it. Her spirit still lives on in that coat. And so by wearing that, you're channeling her. You're channeling her sense of self, her pride, her dreams and visions for you and your other siblings and cousins, you know? So that, for me, is why I think clothes have these emotional aspects to them in ways that I feel like my work as a historian dealing with a more traditional archive and really staying away from the effective didn't allow me to explore in some of my earlier work. Thank you. Uh, that was great. I didn't, what was that, that residue that mm-hmm. you were talking about the on residue the clothes? Of us. Yeah, that really hit me. Um, one of the other shows that you watch on Bravo TV is Million Dollar Listing LA. And I was wondering how this became one of your um, favorite shows over a show like Million Dollar Listing New York, um, since you're located more um, on the East Coast. And in what ways does Million Dollar Listing intersect with your research interests? Okay, so you have to remember, Casey, before there was a Million Dollar Listing LA, there was Million Dollar Listing. And I say that to say that L.A. was the first show. So there wasn't any of these other, you know, shows. There wasn't San Diego or San Francisco. There wasn't New York at that point. It was L.A. So that was the original show. And I can remember watching that show and just mouth open a gag over this property that they were showing. That was real aspirational television, like. I knew that, okay, here I am. I'm already a broke graduate student and I'm going to go into the academy where I'm still more than likely never going to be able to afford one of these houses. So to be able to go into those houses 
even just through the the lens of the Bravo camera and to see those faces, it was amazing. So then when New York, when Million Dollar Listing New York came out, it's like a million dollar property in New York can still be a Cracker Jack apartment in Manhattan. You know, that to me, that wasn't as aspirational. <laughs> I still look at those places like, okay, no, I don't, I don't even want to, it doesn't have, to me, it doesn't have that awe factor in the same way as the homes that they showed us in LA did. I mean, I just, I just feel like all the square footage, I mean, my apartment, I don't even want to tell you the square footage of my apartment in New York. I mean, it really is like a Cracker Jack box. And so just to think about square footage, and, and this is how I know I'm now an adult, because I'm thinking about my life in terms of, of square feet. I'm like, oh my God, if only I could have that much space. So, so yeah, I love it because I, I just remember the early show before there were any others in that franchise. And it wasn't so much a thing that had to do with my research, but it allowed me to dream about like, what if I had taken a different career path? Maybe I would be able to afford one of these mansions that they're showing on this show. But it's just a fun, that became like a fun escapist kind of television. Can I push you a little farther on that or further on Mm -hmm. that? Um, Because I'm thinking about the episode you talk about in Dressed in Dreams, where you go to see your auntie in um, Baldwin Hills was it Baldwin Hills and, and yes. she has a swimming pool and you're coming from the Midwest and you think this is it. She's really made it. So I'm just wondering also what kind of um, role kind of your early childhood memories uh, play in kind of how you embrace some of these shows. That wasn't, that was on, yeah. on script. I just, you know, I love the book. I've been tweeting about the book. It's taken everything in my power not to send you text messages. I just, when you were saying million dollar listing, I, it, what it evoked to me that little that little girl that that young Tanisha Ford. Oh yeah, that is such a great question. Thank you for that because I do I can I can just really vividly remember rolling up into that house to that house and my aunt. I mean, they lived in a nice house here in Fort Wayne. I'm in Fort Wayne right now, actually. They lived in a, a nice house here, a nice house, and they always had, you know, fancier cars than than most folks. But when they moved out to Los Angeles, I mean, their life was just on a whole new level. And even when they picked me up from the airport, they picked me up in a black Mercedes Benz. And the Mercedes oh, they was were doing LA, LA, LA. They were doing LA. Yes. They were doing it big. So they picked me up in the Mercedes Benz, and then we pull up to this, we pull up to this mansion and I get out and I'm like, wow, this is possible. This is possible for black people. And I'm sure I didn't have exactly that language then. But what I do remember feeling was like, she doesn't have to be on that grind, that paycheck to paycheck, you know, working hard kind of grind in the way that my friends whose parents worked in factories did, they had to work overtime in order to get the money that they needed to pay for things and to pay for school supplies, but then all the extras too, and to pay for rent and all that. There, she was a caterer. And so she got to be a creative. And so to see a black woman creative who is working in a realm of material culture, right? And, and food ways. And she's living like this and she has a pool in the backyard and a cleaning lady. I mean, it was like, that was unheard of. I didn't know any black people in Fort Wayne who lived in that way. And so I do think that a seed was planted. 
both in terms of me being able to imagine career possibilities beyond the factories, the factory work that it was the main industry here in Fort Wayne, but it also allowed me to see a space like LA and to be close to the water. You know, when you're from the Midwest, yes, we have the Great Lakes, those are nearby, but to see a huge ocean, you know, I got to see that at, at eight or nine years old and it was really transformative. And so I think perhaps there is a way that little girl Tanisha is still in awe of that Baldwin Hills house and I get to relive that moment when I watch episodes of Million Dollar List in L.A. Excellent. I mean, just so you know that those of us in Southern California are also in awe of a Baldwin Hills home. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> let's just say that. <laughs> yes, I think um, Insecure kind of made me understand Baldwin Hills a little bit more, too, because, of course, Issa's character, and I think Issa in real life lived in Baldwin Hills, and so there's a way that getting to see that space and how it is rendered through the lens of Insecure allowed me to see, like, aha, your black girl all wasn't misplaced. Right. Like there is something that is special about this community. Oh, indeed. Indeed. So I want to circle back to talk a little bit more about Potomac and Atlanta. So recently Potomac has become your favorite Real Housewives franchise over Atlanta. And so I we talked about it a little bit before, but can you elaborate on how Potomac speaks to you both as a viewer for fun and as a scholar? Well, I think part of the issue is now we're four seasons in to Potomac, but what are we, like 11 or 12 seasons <laughs> into Real Housewives of Atlanta? So I kind of feel like there's just generally for me as a viewer, there's a way that Atlanta feels a little done to death. It almost feels like, please take this show off the air or drastically reimagine it. I don't need to see another charade or Phaedra pop back up on the show. Like, I just feel like the show is, you know, it's, it's, it's a little lacking for me. But what I think about as a researcher is how do they have these two? Well, first of all, I think it's really interesting that the only time we get black women on this show is when they're, they are either all or predominantly black cast. So we have Atlanta, we have Potomac, um, but how they try to differentiate between these two casts. And I think one of the ways that they do that is through this conversation around old versus new money. So when Atlanta premiered, it was all about Atlanta as this new, or at this point, at least newer black Mecca um, where, you know, people could be in, in the entertainment space and the athletic space and, you know, of course, with entertainment, we're talking about music, but also TV. And, you know, now we have more of a Hollywood film industry moving towards production in Atlanta. And so these women were the faces of, of that, the faces of this new black elite class who were largely tied to the entertainment industries. And I thought that that was cool and that it showed us like here is like this black opulence, black glam, but more filtered through a hip hop soul lens, you know, like, like, oh, like the, the way that they were dressing, the style that they were dressing in. 
I think some of the early castmates, one was a wife of a basketball player. One was the ex-wife of R&B crooner Keith Sweat. And then, of course, we had Nene, who was married to Greg. And even though we didn't kind of all the way understand what Greg did, we were we knew that we were supposed to understand that he, he had come into money, that he had been successful in his career in real estate or whatever it was he was doing. And so this was like the, the cast of people. And of course, there was Kim who had the mysterious Big Papa, Sugar Daddy guy, and Sheree, who used to be married to the football player. And so it was an interesting way to think about Black life in Atlanta, whereas I think with Potomac, what is really intriguing me now is, again, how we're supposed to see these people as part of this long, much older tradition that we can date back, you know, to the 19th century in that region of the country and how they have long since been carving out these identities as a black elite and what has made them elite. And I think that one thing that's very striking for me is when I do a lot of this research in the DC metro area, of course, fair skin was a huge part to being a part of that elite and to see this cast and just to look at them most of the women are very fair complexioned. So I'm trying to understand even how Bravo is distinguishing the Potomac women from the Atlanta women, even through the, the, the physical presence of these women and how they're styled and their hair textures and all these things. And so I'm trying to, to dig at that and offer a, a critical way to read what's happening here and how that's connected to this black elite and what we believe these people look like and the occupations they had and the parties that they, they hosted. How do you uh, feel about Kenya coming back to the show? Well, I think Kenya makes for good TV and I think they know that and they, they need her. And let's be honest, she needs them too. <laughs> she, needs, she needs the work. She needs the paycheck. She needs the exposure. Mm-hmm. I think it's really unfortunate though, that, we didn't get to see Kenya and her her child, um, her pregnancy and her, her birthing story unfold on the show, especially because we've, like her whole storyline since she joined the cast was all about how she wanted to be married and have a child and be, be the mother to a child in the way that her mother wasn't for her. So to not have a chance to see that on screen, I think that it's a loss for viewers. But I just don't want, I want her to come back and be able to do something different. I don't want it to, her to come back and still be talking about twirling and don't come for me unless I send for you. I mean, I just, I want to see an evolved Kenya, but I, I want to see an evolved version of all these women. But it seems like to me, no matter if we're talking about Atlanta or Potomac, because I think the first season of Potomac, they really try to lay it on thick with they this. Really we are elite, honey, and we don't behave in this way, and we don't eat off of this kind of flatware. And darling, how could you ever bring me to this spot? But now they just as ratchet as everybody else. Right. I mean, right. you know, so so really, it, it'll be interesting to see what Potomac looks like three seasons from now. Will it look more like the Atlanta, you know, franchise where it's kind of like, okay, well, what else can y'all show us? I mean, like, <laughs> we don't need to see another fight. Um, 
but I'm also, I know that this is not a Bravo show, but I, I'm really, I, don't, I think we can't help but to compare and contrast Potomac and Atlanta with basketball wives. I'm telling you, that's my go to. own kind of thing, right? Thank you you for backing my my theories. You don't even know it that we are in conversation. Tell us about basketball basketball wise. This is the third episode running that we've talked about basketball wise. That we mentioned basketball wise. I mean, because I don't think that you can talk about this type of women centered and especially black women centered reality television without talking about basketball wives. I mean, because it set a certain kind of tone, again, you know, allowing us to see behind the veil of the basketball, which I call sports entertainment world, you know, to see what what the lives are like of these wives. But it is the pettiest show on television. And I love it for just allowing me to be petty and to relive like my college days all over again through these women. Like, oh yes, because she reminds me of so-and-so from school and she reminds me of, you know, but so much of what the basketball wives were wearing, in particular, I'm thinking about Evelyn Lozada and Jennifer Williams influenced the fashion. Everybody wanted to look like these women. I mean, you just really can't deny, like, when the when Basketball Wives started wearing those huge hoop earrings with, like, the three um, little beaded jewels on them, I think Evelyn started selling them or something, everybody started wearing those earrings. They started popping up in boutiques online. Everybody wanted a version of those earrings because the Basketball Wives were wearing them. Everybody wants a lace front because the women on Real Housewives of Atlanta and the basketball wives are always talking about high-quality wigs, high-end wigs. They're the reason we know all these designers, Balenciaga and Celine, and, Mm -hmm. you know, the the list could go on. It's because they're always wearing all this stuff. I mean, did you see Jennifer's Balenciaga sweater? I was like, okay, I want that now. Where can I find (laughs) that sweater that I can't afford but that I want? (laughs) So I I just think that Basketball Wives, I I love the pettiness. I think at some point it went too far with the violence and and they really, I'm glad that the viewing audience took them to task for that. But I I can't help but watch that show every week. I I really can't. I mean, I'm right with you. I I, I just, (laughs) what is going to happen? Is Tammy going to come back and have a more pronounced role? I mean, you know, because if we want to talk about grand right. of reality TV, let's talk about oh, Tammy Rowland yes. for a minute. Oh, we have to. I mean, yes. come on. that's where it, it started, MTV, right? Um, anyway, I know our time is short with you, so I do want to, you know, keep it as much as I can um, on task. Um, so you studied the black elite and black philanthropy, and you were talking a little bit about the way in which um, D.C. in some ways or Potomac looks different than Atlanta so can you talk a little bit about, um, or I'm sorry, can you give listeners some background on the topic of the black elite and philanthropy? And also, you know, because you are a master speaker, um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the political nature of some of these parties that they're hosting on uh, Potomac and Atlanta, or, or are these parties politicized? I mean, I know that you know it comes from a long history um, so anywhere you can intervene on that very long question about black elite or black philanthropy would be great. Yeah, you know, okay, so 
Every project that we get to do as scholars that we choose for ourselves allows us to go down a different journey, explore new archives, find new interlocutors, new fields, like fields of study that we never thought that we'd be in conversation with or contributing to. And so for me, philanthropy is one of those fields. And it started, believe it or not, this project started with me as a graduate student, a dissertator, tracking down this white-owned wig shop in Harlem and this protest against the wig shop. And I found that there was this woman, a local model, whom they'd hired to be the face of this white-owned wig shop called Wigs Parisian. And that woman, I found, was a Beaux-Arts ball queen. And I found that the Beaux-Arts Ball was the major fundraiser of the National Urban League Guild that was founded by Molly Moon. And Molly Moon rose after after the passing of like Alelia Walker and um, others um, in that 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 cohort of hostesses, fundraisers, et cetera, she rose to be one of the premier fundraisers in Harlem. So I've been thinking about, though, not just how much money was raised, although I have been tracking that. So I've been following the ball and how the ball is covered in the black press each year and how much money they're reporting that they raised and all of that and some of her other fundraisers and what the causes were, some of the things that this money was going toward, and it was going toward everything from um, supporting Harlem-based art centers to um, helping Harlem youth who were at risk of dropping out of school and entering the criminal, uh, the, the prison system to fund them and kind of get them on the right track, you know, those sorts of things to helping uh, former showgirls who now were suffering from arthritis to help them get the treatment that they needed in, in Phoenix, Arizona, right? So it's like a whole range of things that they're raising money for. So I'm following that money, but I'm also following and trying to understand the lifestyle of a fundraiser. And that's what Potomac helps me understand. It's like, who did these women feel like they needed to be publicly and who versus who could they be privately who did they need to know? How did they need to show up in the spaces that they were hosting events in in order to raise all of this money? And once you really start to peel back the layers, you can see that there's nothing but scandal, honey, scandal all over the, the thing. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. <laughs> so that's where I'm at now. I'm thinking about following this money and seeing where it leads me to, you know, these strange bedfellows, like, Molly was besties with the Rockefellers. And whenever she needed something, she turned to the Rockefellers. Um, but you would never think that this self-made woman who spent a lot of her, her um, years in the Midwest, who was married from a man from the Midwest, who was a, a leader in the NAACP, would become this person who's hobnobbing with all of these wealthy black and white folks. And what I also really want to point out, though, that so much of this is not just about wealth. Some of these people really did have money, but a lot of them were just doing the performance of having money. 
And so I'm really invested in thinking through the material nature of that performance, the clothes, the flatware, um, the, the China that they're serving off of and all of that stuff. So have you noticed, and I've only noticed this in, in small circumstances, but going back to these parties that the housewives host, um, you know, some are politicized, some are not. Do you mm-hmm. feel based on your own research, like, okay, I'm trying not to interject my own narrative into this. No, yeah, I want to hear your narrative. Do, do, do you feel <laughs> like, given what we know about um, black social advancement, do you feel that the housewives parties should be more politically centered or are they, or, or do you think they should just go with the flow and just be a, 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 an escapism? You know, I think it should be a blend of both. And I think that they, that they, at least the women I'm studying, I feel like they were. Um, one thing I think is really interesting about the housewives, particularly the housewives of Potomac, but even in Atlanta too, they all have a cause. Yes. They all have a social mm-hmm. cause, you know, and most of those causes are charity based, right? And that's a particular type of fundraising effort, right? This is, this is, a, I'm contributing to a social good, but the model I'm doing it, it through is we're going to raise this money and then we're going to give it to a worthy organization or a worthy cause. Now, what I've noticed with Molly Moon in the, in the National Urban League and the guild that she was presided over was that once they move into the, the early 1960s, they become way more overtly politicized where things aren't just about the charity model. It's really about like, how can we roll up our sleeves and contribute to this movement? People need to be bailed out of jail. We're raising money to get people bailed out of jail, you know, because act- activists are getting locked up for fighting for the, the black freedom cause. So I'm interested in thinking about like that, that language of charity versus a more activist model and where and how that shows up. Like, I think that there's a long history. We understand how Delta Sigma Theta shows up in the civil rights movement archive. I'm talking about the sorority for, for folks who are unfamiliar, how they show up in the civil rights movement archive as people who were on the front line, so to speak, of the movement. So for me, one of my questions was, well, where is Alpha Kappa Alpha in all this? You know, and I found like, oh, they're the women who are hosting these teas and other charity events. And I say that not to not to downplay the importance of that work, but just to say they exist in a different place in the archive. Right. But then there are these spaces where they overlap. And I think that we haven't yet found the lens, and this is what I'm trying to do, to see where those two archives overlap and where those seemingly different forms of political engagement overlap. But then I think there's this other piece that I think is fascinating that you bring up. And it's the political nature or the political significance of black leisure and black joy, where we can just create a private space where we're having a, I'm hosting a party at my house and it's not overtly political, but just the sheer fact that we are eating the most decadent food that our ancestors never would have even had access to, that we are drinking fancy uh, champagne, vintage champagne. Like that was also a part of it. And that's also what we should see show up in the black, the archive of the black press. Um, I found this really interesting story. Um, well, I found it interesting. Like Gordon Park, Gordon Parks, the famed photographer, is hosting a party at his summer house, and all these people. He he has limousines 
gather all these black folks and bring them up to his country estate. And they have just hundreds of pounds of barbecued chicken and ribs <laughs> and wow. cases upon cases of vintage champagne. And the black press is covering like, oh yeah, people were splashing in the pool well in after midnight. And so this kind of opulent display of blackness I think that there is a political nature to that, too, that I want to bring to bear on this history of the Black Freedom Movement and how we tell that history alongside this more formal history around um, political organizing, but also fundraising and Black philanthropy. Well, I know we are all excited for the next project, the Socialite Project. It's almost... um I could, I could speak to, to you about it all day long because, you know, my new project, <laughs> I'm interested in what happens after freedom. And so this socialite, mm. this socialite aspect, again, you want to talk about not even being conceivable in, in ancestors' dreams. Um, right. I'm really excited about this socialite project. So um, I won't take this time to talk to you more about it, but I am going to talk your ear off about it at some point. Yes, knowing we got to do it. Knowing that um, our time is limited, I want to go back to Dressed in Dreams because you speak about being on trend or or you give this great explanation of being, you know, using the knockoffs but still being on trend. <laughs> and you also spoke to a particular place in which being on trend has in the African-American community. So can you discuss being on trend slash on brand in relationship to either Potomac or Atlanta? Are they on brand? Oh, Are they making yeah. their own brands? But we know she by Sheree, they are making their own brand. That doesn't mean that that's <laughs> to borrow from you. That doesn't mean that that's where the culture is at. Okay. <laughs> right. The culture was nowhere near there. <laughs> I definitely think in both spaces, having your look on point is of prime importance. And I do think that, especially with the women in Atlanta, they are trying to set the trends. Now, how successful they are is a different story. But think about how many episodes we always hear about the fashions, honey, the fashions. Oh, she got the fashion. She ain't got the fashions. Like this, was it this last season where Shamari DeVoe was on the show and it's like, Mm-mm. Mm-mm. baby ain't doing nothing right these clothes ain't hitting on nothing she ain't she's always on the who wore it worst list you know so there's an idea that 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 each community has its own fashion ecosystem and in that ecosystem there there is its own there's its own taste culture if you will Right. Like what is socially acceptable in any given space? What brands are we wearing now? What designers are we wearing now? Who can find something that nobody else really has access to and put that designer or that handbag or those glasses on the map? And I think that for so long, Mimi wanted to be the fashion queen in Atlanta. And I think that's why she was jealous when her friend, what's her name, Tanya, Tanya Sams, when she came and everybody was like, no, hands down, Tanya is the fashion queen. And I think Marlo was jealous too, because prior to that moment, Marlo was the queen who was, who had all the fashion, you know? And so they're always rivaling to be at the top of their own little ecosystem. I think that that's their first concern. And I think that if you look at black communities writ large, that's what we see as well. I know where I'm from. We couldn't compete in any way with the women in LA or the Bay Area or New York City or Atlanta or Miami. 
but we had our own fashion ecosystem and that that might have involved a knockoff or two a terrible knockoff but when you didn't have access to even a good knockoff who, who knew right so if you had a, a decently passable knockoff then you know you could be atop the the fashion hierarchy in this region or in this city so i'm really interested in thinking about like those micro ecosystems even but then how if you have a platform, which is the language, of course, that these folks love to use today, then how your own fashion ecosystem or your micro ecosystem in your city now sets the trend for the rest of the nation, you know? And I think that that's what we see. We see people like Nini wanting to lead the trend with her, her swag boutique or even Rashida, who's based in Atlanta, but of, of course is on Love and Hip Hop Atlanta and her, her boutique is huge. I mean, she even made the Forbes list. So there's a way that these women are seeing the fashion and beauty space as a very lucrative second or third income. So thank you. That was a lot. Yeah. I, I went back to those arguments, like some, some of the best moments in dressing down, I think I've ever seen on television happened in the last season of Atlanta. Arguing oh, about yeah. fashion and like who has it and who doesn't. In, it was uh, right Tokyo with Eva <laughs> dressing down Marlo. That yeah. was a mm-hmm. clinic. Yeah. So, <laughs> let me let me say I'll hail the Queen Cynthia Bailey. Remember, I don't remember if it was Marlo or I think it was Marlo who was who uh, one trip they went on several seasons ago, she brought all this luggage and she said something up to Cynthia and Cynthia then in her cameo says, I'm very aware of who Louise Vuitton is and says it in the right, <laughs> in the right accent. I didn't even do the right accent, but you know, she said it like in the proper accent. Yes. So, you know, whatever they want to say, Cynthia is still a run wa- runway model and, and grand yes. in her own way. So she is, but, she put but, Eva to shame when they did their face off their battle catwalk battle and, and she, she ended up winning and Eva was shocked like yeah no Cynthia still got it she still got mm-hmm. it she still got it Miss 50 Cent yes no 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 50 Cent yes 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 now she's chill yes. chill I think that's her new thing <laughs> <laughs> So I want us to move into our Bonko Party segment, which is where we have a small game break. So today's today's game is called Tagline Archive. And before we jump in, I'd really love for you to share your tagline. If you you are a housewife, what is your catchphrase? I've got a PhD in shade and tea. (laughs) Good one. (laughs) So the way this game is going to work is I'm going to read a tagline and you will get a point if you know which housewife said it. You'll get a point if you know if it's Atlanta or Potomac and you'll get a third point if you know the season. There's going to be three. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to fail miserably at this. So I, I think you guys are. Oh my I, goodness. I don't think you guys are giving yourselves enough credit. I think you can do it. So okay. for example, my example one, if I, if I say, don't come for me unless I twirl for you. Well, we know that's Kenya. Oh, yeah, it's Kenya. So if you already know it's Kenya, you already know it's Atlanta, right? So, yeah. So now, do you guys know the season? I have no idea. The it one was the last I, season that yeah. she was on. Yeah, last season. So I'll say like eight. It was season oh. eight. Ah, okay. So that, <laughs> so that was just a trial run. Okay. So we'll go in the order of Tanisha, Max, Jessica. You're all guessing, but I'll record... Okay. Um, your response first. Okay. So this next one, 
I may be small, but my empire keeps on growing. Candy, Burris. Okay, and so we're going to get Atlanta. Do you know it's season? Atlanta. Um, ooh, was that around season seven or eight? <clears throat> okay, Max, yeah, I don't know. do you agree that it's candy? I immediately went to Tiny, but she's not on. I'm so, okay, I'm so yeah. lobbying for Tiny to be in, uh, yeah, to get a peach, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> she should. Um, yeah, it's probably candy. I think it's like season four, though. Okay, Jessica? Um, I think it's candy, and I think it was this most recent season. Which would have been 11. 11. Okay, well, you all got two points. It was season five. Oh, oh. I was close. You were close. I mean, her empire was growing back then, too. Okay, she right. <laughs> okay. Okay, so number two. Life is a pageant, and I'm in it to win it. Oh, that's Potomac. Um, is it Candace or is it uh, Ashley? Oh. I, think it, I think it was... Ooh, I think it's Candace, and I think it was her first season on the show, which was season three. Okay. So Candace Potomac, season three. Max? I think I'm quickly looking up a name because I think it... Oh, you're Googling? No, I'm yes, not Googling. I'm is. not Googling. I feel like you just name. cheated. No, no, like no, no. Cheated. I just need to know her name because oh. I think it's Katie. Oh, you think it's Katie? From like season two, season yeah. I'll just say season two. I'm probably wrong, but from Potomac, yeah. Okay, yeah. Jessica, I have absolutely no idea. Okay, do you want to guess which franchise? I'm gonna say it's Potomac. I would say it was Ashley. Okay, do you want to guess a season? There's only you're been... going to push me, aren't you? Well, there's uh, there's we're on like four, so you. Can... I'm I'm gonna say one. Okay. Um, and Tanisha gets all three points. Oh, wow. Yay. Yeah. So it didn't even matter. I cheated. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Let this be a lesson in the classroom, students. Yeah. <laughs> but Max and Jessica both gained another point. Okay. Sweet. Okay. Our last tagline. For everything. Okay. Is it. In Potomac, it's not about who you know, it's who you are. And I'm everything. Ooh. Ooh. Okay. Oh, shoot. Okay. I'm trying to figure out if it's Karen or Giselle. Dang. Because Giselle's famous one is word on the street is I'm the word on the street. Right. And I like that one. Right. Um, but I feel like that also sounds like something Giselle would say. But it also feels like something Karen would say. Okay. So I would say... Okay, I'm just going to go and say Karen Huger, Potomac, season one. Max? Uh, yeah, I was kind of hoping you were going to say Giselle so that we could split the points or something. I'm going to say it's Karen, but I'm going to say it's season two. Jessica? I'm going with um, Karen, season one. Okay, so Tanisha and Jessica got all three right. <laughs> Yay! And Max <laughs> another another two points. So the final totals is Tanisha got eight points, Max got five, and Jessica got six. So Tanisha's our winner. Yay! Yay! 
So before we let you go, um, I just want to give you an opportunity to tell the listeners what's next for you, um, what you're working on, and how people can contact you if they're interested in learning more about your research. Yes, yeah, so I am right in the middle of my Dressed in Dreams book tour. So catch me in a city near you. If I'm not coming to a city near you, please invite me to a city near you. I would love to see you. I'm also working on the Socialite Project. I hope to be deep in the archives. If not this summer, at least by next summer, finishing up original um, research for that project. And of course, I'm always on social media. People can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Solista, PhD, S-O-U-L-I-S-T-A, PhD. Also on my website, TanishaCFord.com. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much Thank for joining us. Thanks for having me. This was so much fun. Thank you for this project. This is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Hopefully you'll come on for season two. Yes, I would love to. <laughs> Thank you, Tanisha. We're going to say goodbye and um, cut off the line so you can go about the next thing in your day. Okay. Thank right. you. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. That was such an exciting interview. That was excellent. I love how she talked about everything has its own fashion ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just really loved all of the personal life connections that she brings in not just to her work on a daily basis, but also into her Bravo viewing. That it, You can see it's a really personal experience, but it is also a community building experience. So with that, I just want to let you guys know what's coming up with us. To keep current with our goings on, you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at historiansh. You could also find us on historiansonhousewives.com where you can propose your own episode topic to sit here on the mics with us. You can submit a blog post or even an idea for um, a chapter for the edited volume that we're going to start working on soon. Or if you don't want any of that and you just want a handy-dandy tumbler, tote bag, or other H-on-H item. A shirt for your dog, for example. Yeah, we got plenty of shirts for dogs to move. And if you do want to just send us questions or feedback on the episodes, you can also submit stuff to us via our website. So if you want to ask a question for us to tackle on a show, feel free to find us there. We tweet Sunday through Thursday, so if you want to see our Bravo commentary, uh, feel free to take a look. Today we want to thank Tanisha C. Ford for being our guest. The show was brought to you with the support by Barbara and Mark Spear, Saddleback Community College, Christina Hinkle, Christina Gampapur, Jed Marlaski, Pete Murray, Cody Baker, Molly Callahan, Dr. Joaquin Galarza, Courtney Crow, and Lara Loper. See you next time on Historians on Housewives. This could be my day job. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.